everyone, welcome back to uh, the Incidental Encyclical podcast. This is the, uh, I think, fourth podcast of the year coming up now. It's been a wild journey of trial and tribulation so far. And this uh, this podcast, I think we're really going to be focusing on the strife within. Um, and this goes with our last uh, issue as well um, that we're publishing. And we're, uh, we're really excited to talk about some of the concepts that we're going to go over today. Yeah, we're very excited to unfold this theme. And this theme's coming not just at the end of the year, but the end of a story we've been trying to tell across the themes that we've chosen in the other issues that have led up to now. So the theme we're looking at as we come to the end of this year, Strife Within, is completing a story we've been trying to tell over the course of this entire year, our first year as a publication and a project. Throughout the year, we've been following roughly the pattern of the Exodus story, the myth, the pattern, the narrative that forms the basis of the biblical people of Israel. They began in subjugation, captivity, and suffering, were led out through the sea into a desert where they would eventually find a law. They would find wisdom. This would give them identity, shape them, define them, and yet at the same time would cause trouble, would cause questions would cause a crisis of identity now that they had received one. And that's what we're trying to look at now uh, is the theme of strife within. What happens when someone tries to tell you what to do or who to become? How does that affect you and how will it shape you? Yeah. And I think it's really important to remember as well, this is something that's been happening throughout human history forever. Um, the, the, the whole concept of going on a journey of hardship and overcoming obstacles and um resolving battles within yourself is the really the only path to to growth to enlightenment um and i mean like life pretty much forever has been a journey you know you can only go forwards and that's why we've taken uh this overarching story for our first year and we'll be looking at different stories as we go on and trying to unpack them but the way we've been approaching this project is in every issue of the magazine and every accompanying podcast like this one we're trying to take three works of literature from the ancient from the medieval and from the modern periods respectively and examine them not just tell you who wrote them and and when but to look at the ways in which the themes in those works tie into the broader stories that have happened in histories, in myths, in literature, and in our own lives. Um, and it's this idea that if we compare patterns that we can see in the worlds we experience and in the worlds we read about and dream about, that we might have a better understanding of our own lives. So I'm Samuel. Uh I have a Bachelor of Ancient History. I'm Levi. I have a Bachelor of Ancient History uh, and just submitted my master's thesis. So, you know, hopefully that'll be another title I can add. But I've been studying the classics now for about seven, seven, eight years. Uh, you know, and it's just a constant part of my life. My name is Michael. I studied Certificate 4 in Classical Liberal Arts and then went on to do a diploma. And I just love learning. I love everything about taking what you can kind of find from the people of the past and applying it to yourself and learning from it. Um, and yeah, it's a real honor to be part of it. We started this project so that we could carry out this mission and try and uh, 
encourage others to take a look at the works that have profound meaning, profound significance, and have had that meaning significance for centuries or even thousands of years. Yes. Yeah. Um, and hopefully encourage others to pick them up and have a look at what they're about. Yeah, there's so much learning that can be divulge from these um, old pieces of literature. And you shouldn't limit yourself as as a person as well. Like for those listening, don't be afraid of jumping into some of the things that we're talking about. Like everything's about learning. Everything's about a journey. So hopefully we'll be able to inspire you a little bit to, um, to pick something up, to give it a little bit of a read. Um, I think there's a lot to be taken away from these old works. Absolutely. And, you know, that is the mission of our magazine. Now, for today's discussion, before we get into our three works for today, uh, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, The Symposium by Plato, and Sir Gawain the Green Knight, an old English poem, uh, Sam, you, I feel, had, uh, you know, sort of an overarching structure that we could, you know, use to examine these works. Yeah, so... As I mentioned earlier, the way that we're approaching the idea of Strife Within is it's a moment that comes in the story of a journey up. And I like the word or the term journey up more than a hero's journey, um, because I think it can be seen as something that applies not just to um, a young man, but uh, to entire peoples, to individuals of all these different um, stations, starting points, and the idea of strife within coming at the end of this early moment in the journey, having decided to make this change, having gone through the chaos that follows when you try and turn your life upwards, then to finally receive the guidance that you need, the the law that will define it. This final moment of now having to confront what that means, I see as prompting or provoking or demanding one of three responses in the person who makes it this far in their journey. So when a law or a piece of guidance comes, it's not actually, at least from my personal experience and from the stories I've read, the myths and the comics and the the pieces of literature, all these different stories, when a hero, when a journeyer, when an individual, when a people arrive at the point of receiving something that will define them and give them shape and guidance, it often means turning everything around or upside mm. down in order to follow that, in order to become what you, they, or he, or she, or it, or them, or anything are meant to be. Mm. Exactly. I think it's like and you have a image in your head of what you are as a person, and then you have to basically change that, kill that version of yourself, and kind of realize that you're wrong a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And so the idea of strife within carries with it kind of two meanings, right? There's strife because the person is going to now be in conflict, maybe momentarily, maybe for the rest of their life, with whatever tried to give them that rule, whatever they try to give them that piece of guidance, right? Whatever authority is handing that down, they're now in conflict with them. But they're also in conflict with themselves because they have to ask the question, how will I respond? And as I mentioned, I feel like there are three possibilities, let's say at least three, um, that confront this individual, this person, this group who have just received wisdom in desert places. And so I I like to um, understand along the lines of the rebel, the renegade, and finally along the line of reconciliation. So who is the rebel? Most simply, I'd say the rebel is the person who cannot accept the guidance they've just been given. They cannot understand it 
or perhaps they cannot see it possible that they will be able to make the change in order to go along with it. But as far as they perceive things, whatever has just been given to them is too much. And they will now work, whether they know it or not, to subvert that, mm. right? Uh and this is a story that you see even in the Exodus story itself, when Moses, the leader of the people of Israel at this time, goes up the mountain to receive the law. At the base of the mountain, the people build an idol and have an orgy, right? So there's this there's this <laughs> nice immediate <laughs> reaction, right, to the possibility of becoming defined and having to follow a rule that leads them to do everything wrong immediately. Yeah, they just freak out at the thought of having to follow rules. It's like it's like one of the two basic functions of human sex or war. It's like one of those yeah. two ever confronted with something hard, <laughs> sex or war. Yeah, yeah. Um, and or, or fight or flight um, yeah. is is our basic reaction to a physical threat or to an existential threat. And I think getting a new law in your life is an existential threat. It might not be physical, but it is forcing you to change your existence. You have to change your habits, your behavior, your beliefs, right? And so fight. Is the um, can be signed up with the idea of the rebel. I can't accept this. I'm not going to do it. And then whether you know it or not, you will try and work to subvert it. But then flight is another response. And I would call this a path of the renegade. And the renegade is a little bit more aware, perhaps, than the rebel of what is implied by what is being asked of them. And I would say the renegade has the perception that they could they can accept this guidance, but they won't. Um, in fact, Moses himself, before this whole Exodus narrative begins to unfold, is called by God in the burning bush story. And when that happens, Moses begins to make up a lot of excuses as to why he's the wrong guy for the job, right? So Moses knows fully well he's capable, right, of what's being offered, but he starts saying, well, no, see, I have a stutter. Mm -hmm. And no, well, actually, they won't listen to me anyway. And so Moses isn't saying that, no, I'm incapable. He's saying, well, I am going to put barriers in between and push myself away, right, even though I could do this. Mm. Uh, and and so there's there's these elements, right, of rebel and renegade that take place in stories and can take place in our own lives um, when we are confronted or when a character, when a hero, when a journey is confronted with the idea of a rule and then i said mm, final... i just want to sorry i want to this is a this is perhaps a, a long bow to draw but i think it's very interesting which is to look at this from i think the rebel could be said to be under the divine the defining spirit of the 60s let's say <laughs> you know mm. you know the people that you know the you know teenagers in the 60s yeah. they got their instructions from their parents you know like you know just settle down get married get a corporate job and what do they do they fought it's like they you know the 60s is a big tantrum of teenage kids who do you know on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. Whereas the renegade feels a bit more like the spirit of today, almost. Because mm. like young people today aren't really fighting against it's not the 60s, you know. People aren't fighting against the structures that are being imposed on them. But they are sort of, you know, saying maybe that's not for me. Maybe, maybe push push that away a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think like we do see organized protests and et cetera today, but it just doesn't have the same. Um, you're right. The spirit is not is not the same. And I think today we've been affected much more by the spirit of uh, swapping out the real world for the online. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, and there's there's the knowledge that, well, I could engage with what's out there, but it's much easier 
to exist in in this escapist uh, world. With that, thank you everyone for listening. We really appreciate <laughs> you. Uh, you if you're a child of the sixties or a child for the day, we apologize. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but we're we're children of the age too. So yeah. yeah. And um, if you can't beat him, join him. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there are these two paths, the idea of rebel and renegade that I think, yeah, as Levi's mentioned, you can see them in stories, but they're also just as easily identifiable in historical movements, in societies, and hopefully in yourself, you know, if you want to try and become a little bit self-aware about how you might process things. I've been thinking a lot over this past quarter about how I respond to certain things along these lines. Like, am I, am I really you know, uh, taking on advice <laughs> in a in a genuine way or am yeah. I simply trying to run away from it or fight against it? I relate, to that. I relate to that. And yeah. I think that's really, that's a really important thing to think about, especially for people who don't, who don't necessarily um, like read a lot. Usually, like I know it's hard with all the distractions and online kind of media we have today. It's hard to kind of pull yourself out of that wormhole and actually pick a book up and I think there's just a lot to learn from it. Like even even within yourself, like Sam, you were saying, like thinking about this stuff has affected your basically thought process around how you respond to people telling you things, you know, and how you yeah. make decisions. Like it's something that has actually had a probably a change in your life, you know, and you yeah. wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been aware of it before without thinking about it, you know. It is a um, serendipitous moment to talk about this theme because we're coming to the end of the year. And at the end of the year, we're confronted by either it's ourselves, it's our parents, it's our, it could be anyone, but they're often asking us and we can be asking this of ourselves, what are we going to do next year, right? Mm. How are we going to change in order to make things better? And quite often, you know, um, I mean, and again, this is part of what I've been having to think through myself, right? Uh, someone encourages me to take on further study or to look for a different employment opportunity. And I might just shut that down and say, no, I'm fine with what I'm doing right now. But then I think about us, you know, and, and I have to think about the third path, which I'll get to now. So we have the rebel, we have the renegade mm. and this third option, which again, I'm uh, let's say I'm going through my own strife within, you know, as I think about all these things uh, going on around me as the year draws to a close, this third option, this third path is reconciliation. And quite often, I'd say that reconciliation can maybe only come after someone's moved through some of these stages, right, leading up to it. Sometimes you have to fight it, have to run away from it before you can get to the point where you are ready to bring it on. Um, because it is, as I mentioned, an existential threat. It will provoke something of a fight or flight quite often in people um, to receive something new, something that you're being told to become or to do. Um, but reconciliation is this, yeah, gradual process in which you say, okay, I can I accept it. Yeah. yeah, and I need to change. And however painful that might be, this is the next step in my journey. So. And can I say as well, this is the only thing that will make you a better human. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Painfully. Painful to admit, but yeah. Um, you know? And that's. That's where I suppose the arc of the year has been so far. Before we start on a new theme for next year, we want to bring us to this point. Um, this is where the journey up, which we started in issue one, will come to. Uh, this is the first crisis point, I think, we're mm. really reaching, where so far we've been talking about going through troubled seas, you know, or journey up, climbing upwards. You've got troubled seas. You've got the wisdom of the places. These are all sort of geographic, physical symbols. But strife mm. within has to be seen 
uh, in a much more personal way. And I mean, it's it's hard for everyone. So you're not you're not alone. Um, it gets better. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. And let's uh let's jump in. Uh, I think obviously these themes that we've we've tried to make them you've tried to sort of make them universal themes but Mm -hmm. i think especially the they've been very clearly seen in the brothers karamazov by fyodor dostoevsky but before we get into that by the way which yeah i was gonna say before we get into that we should probably explain you know who the dos is the big man so yeah as levi mentioned these are themes that um really unfold very beautifully in this novel, The Brothers Karamazov, by a Russian author by the name of Fyodor Dostoevsky. Um, He was born in 1821 and lived until 1881. Um, So really uh, riding that troubled wave throughout the middle of the 19th century. And if you want to talk about a rebel generation, (laughs) right, 1848 was a momentous year across Europe in which uh, there were protests, early socialist uprisings all across France and Germany. And, and it even had begun to affect the old man of Russia, right? This autocracy that still had its serfdom. And Dostoevsky was a young writer who'd grown up in semi-poverty, had made a big hit in the literary scene with his first novel, Poor Folk. And by 1848, had sort of begun to move towards the French radicalism that was spreading across Europe and even into Russia. Just to clarify, that was the French Revolution, right? This is this is well after actually. This is okay. um these are the yeah, these are the revolutions of 1848, which is sort of like little fires that spread up across Europe. And they never really um they never really all connected and had the effect that the the small uh instigators of these um revolutionary movements intended. But for example, Karl Marx you know, the man who wrote the Communist Manifesto was very involved in what was going on at this time and mm. uh, actually was bitterly disappointed when nothing came to fruition because he thought this was the beginning of his the communist movement. So that's the context. And Dostoevsky was caught up in that and sent to the Gulag, right? The classic um, classic punishment for anyone, you know, breaking, making trouble in Russia is to be sent to the frontier. Um, Need a good Gulag. Yeah. Ah. And it was here that... Um, you know, Dostoevsky had to confront, there's many poignant moments, right, when he thought he was going to be executed and it caused crises of faith. But he moved from uh, this role of a of a rebel, let's say, someone who was ready to overthrow the system, to someone who would who could see the purpose of his life and would spend the next decades after he got out of prison trying to in some ways fulfill it and other ways run away from it. He had severe problems with gambling uh, as he left prison and began to write his next novels, The House of the Dead, The Insulted and the Injured. Uh, And later on, some of his most famous works like Crime and Punishment and The Idiot. Uh, And it's towards his very late life when we come to this final novel, right? The Brothers Cameras of the last thing he worked on before he died, that he really begins to accept and move into this spirit of reconciliation and as levi mentioned these paths that Dostoevsky himself lived through right going through this perpetual strife with him through one of the most turbulent times in russian history um and in european history in general uh he lived through it all and was able to capture his own sort of chaotic and turbulent experiences in his own life in this beautiful 
um, thousand page Russian novel called The Brothers Karamazov. It's now, a Mike, <laughs> you, yeah. So, Mike, you this is your first attempt at having a crack at a Dostoevsky novel. How have you yeah. been finding it? Um, be... I guess, yeah. So, this is the first time I've ever read a Dostoevsky model, and I'm kind of starting at the end. Um, and with the allegedly the most complicated, probably. Um, I'm not going to lie, very confusing. Um, the names are the big thing, like, because it's translated from Russian, all the names sound very Russian. And as I'm reading the book, I know I'm pronouncing it wrong in my brain. Um, <laughs> and also another thing about Russian names is nicknames in English are kind of similar to full names. So like Michael gets shortened to Mike, you know, and you can kind of intuit that it's a shortened version of Michael because it sounds the same, but Russian nicknames are just completely different. There's like, yeah. <laughs> so we'll, I guess we'll do our best here because let's we'll try and give the listeners a bit of a summary, but we'll do our best to be consistent in how we refer to the characters. So <laughs> uh, as the title implies, this book's about three brothers. Uh, they're actually half brothers. They've, there's two different mothers for the eldest and then for the younger two. Which and their names are even more complicated than this. Yeah. <laughs> their names are Dimitri, he's the eldest, and then the younger two are Ivan and Alyosha. Right. And we'll try and stick to those names. Dimitri, Ivan, and Alyosha. Because the yeah, the nicknames get used, and there's like one of the nicknames is Meteor. Yeah. It's just Alexi, completely different yeah, to those. Yeah. Fortunately, name. Ivan always stays the same. Yeah, poor Ivan. Um yeah, doesn't get anything cool. <laughs> um but this book is very deeply about strife it begins in familial strife because their father who's a man named theodore is a very corrupt and voluptuous man right he loves womanizing he loves having orgies at his house he's a drunk he's a buffoon he loves insulting people and he loves to be insulted and the story begins with his three brothers sort of um, returning to their 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 father's town, their hometown, for different reasons, and they'll all be brought into conflict with one another and with their father as their their lives begin to unfold and develop. So we have three brothers. We have Dimitri. He's the eldest. Dimitri is very much the rebel in the story. Dimitri is always struggling to do the right thing and he never can really seem to be able to pull it off he thinks one day i'll get there one day i'll do the right thing and yet when the moment calls for it he doesn't even think about doing it <laughs> it just completely goes past him and he does something extravagant sometimes something hedonistic right uh he's a carried away by the excesses of his young soldier's life we talked about last podcast as well. Each of the three brothers kind of embody one value. So like yeah. Alexi is the youngest. Uh, or what names were we going to use? Sorry. Uh, Alyosha. Yeah. Alyosha. Yes. So I, I get them all. They're all in a jumble. I'm still. Alyosha <laughs> <laughs> is the youngest brother and he is very pious. You know, he's very thoughtful. He's just, everyone likes him. He's a nice person. He's studying at a monastery um and he's kind of overlooking all of the questionable wrongdoings of his brothers with uh not a hatred but a sort of like why are they doing that um mm. 
mindset. And I guess what what value would you say Alyosha embodies best when compared to his brothers, Sam? Yeah, well, Alyosha, as you mentioned, he has this this piety about him, but it's not um, a piety that draws him away from the world he lives in, as you mentioned. Like, he doesn't look upon anyone with hatred or disgust. He's very involved in the lives of his brothers. So, on as I mentioned, on the one hand, we have Dimitri, who's a very... Uh, a man very much driven by by pleasure and even though he he seeks to make his life right it always seems to be beyond his capability to do it then the next brother in the middle there is ivan who's a he's an atheist intellectual he's a very smart person he's a very compelling character because of the, how well he has thought out his beliefs um and he does have a lot of hatred for the world around him he has a lot of um hatred for his father for his brothers, for the people of the town. Um, but he also is a sympathetic character because you know he's he's confronting things that have a lot of depth to them and he's trying to work his way through them. And I think in a lot of ways, Ivan shows us the path of the renegade because he knows exactly, in fact, he's in the early stage of the novel, he's um, published a theological paper that causes a stir among the monks because of how radically theocratic it is it advocating for like the church controlling the state and ivan doesn't believe any of that he could and he could accept the truth of the faith that others around him live but he won't and he has his reasons and maybe we'll touch on that a little, little bit later but as um as you asked mike i think alios is defined by uh, a way of life uh very much marked by reconciliation yeah yeah and it's it has aspects of both of his brothers. Alyosha is is bright. He's not a a foolish young man. He enters the monastery to become a novice monk, and yet not because he's a simpleton who only has piety to show for uh, as his motive. He's an intelligent young man, but he's also uh, a little bit prone to some of the emotion and and perhaps some of the temptations that his brother Dimitri suffers as well. Yeah. So these are the characters of the three brothers, but um, they are all tested through one significant moment that occurs about halfway through the novel. Indeed, because what we haven't told you yet, and what we perhaps should have flagged earlier, is that fundamentally, The Brothers Karamazov is actually a murder mystery novel. <laughs> because halfway through the book, Fyodor Pavlovich, the father of the three brothers, gets murdered. And it's, you know, it's unclear who was that who you know committed the murder now the primary blame seems to fall on dimitri the eldest brother who is you know probably has of the three brothers the worst relationship with his father they're sort of fighting over the same girl which um, is yeah that's a whole other thing <laughs> yeah exactly and and dimitri really needs his inheritance money to get out of debt um and so uh after his brother has been killed, the rest of the story focuses on the court case of Dimitri's trial for his father's murder. Yeah, so the the I think the reason, in many ways, if you if you are interested maybe in um, the premise of the book, or even if you're just interested in the idea of exploring these different ways that a human can kind of try and live out their life, this court case. Uh, and the and the whole murder and the way it pushes all the brothers to try and live out to the the logical conclusion of the path they have set themselves on 
um, it leads to a very poignant ending. And of course, all the brothers um, during the court case, despite all their differences and all the ways in which they have uh, opposed each other or struggled against one another or even uh, hated one another throughout the story, all the brothers try and all the brothers agree on the same truth, right? That they know, and there's good reason for them to know that it wasn't Dimitri who killed their father, right? It was one of the servants in the house um, that they all that all seek to blame as the culprit. And yet the system doesn't believe them, right? Even though there is no reason for these three brothers to agree on this because they've all had such strong differences and they're all motivated by such different things. The fact that the end of the novel sees them coming together and failing to protect the life of their brother on trial um, it really brings out, it really cuts to the heart of humanity, I think, <laughs> because I think anyone who reads this will see themselves very strongly in one of the brothers. They'll mm. see the way that these three young men lead their lives and they'll say, man, that's, that's me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I will say as well, like it, it, the novel is very overwhelming to begin with. Like it is quite, inaccessible at the start like you're going to be you're going to be very confused with all the names and it's all going to be weird but i will say hang in there because it's worth it i haven't finished yet i'm about three quarters of the way through um and it gets a little bit better <laughs> and if you can't if you can't get through a, a thousand pages you know get an audiobook and um listen to it on the way to work but it's um it's a really good story and it's you can definitely I really agree with you, Sam, in terms of identifying with the characters. Like Dostoevsky's done an amazing job in terms of bringing out the details of the intricate workings of like humanity, the human soul, so yeah, yeah. specifically within each of the brothers, to such a way where it's not like it doesn't feel like a, I want to say, a exemplary kind of take on humanity. Like when you're reading it, you don't think, "Wow, I can see what he was trying to do." But when you look at it afterwards, you're like. Damn, that's that takes some skill like he's a really mm. good author you know <laughs> yeah and so it's interesting because we talk about strife within and, and in an internal sense right all the brothers across this story are going to have moments of crisis in their own hearts in their own souls the crisis is going to unfold in their family right so there's mm. strife within in the family in the self but ultimately the end of the story is uh, a court trial mm. it's about it's the a, system exactly it's a, it's a conflict with the law it's, you know, it's a top-down structure of what is supposed to be wisdom, what is supposed to lead you to justice, ultimately failing. Because, you know, spoilers at the end, you know, as Sam said, they fail in their mission. Dmitri is convicted and sent off to Siberia. And Smirjakov, the um, servant who everyone suspects is actually, or the brothers all suspect is the actual uh, killer of their father, gets off scot-free. And so, you know, there's... There is an interesting question here, which is, you know, we're talking about this in the sense of, um, you know, the, the, we've sort of highlighted that the appropriate way to engage with wisdom is to, you know, reconcile with it, not to rebel against it, not to run away from it, but to, to you know, to, to accept it in and to make the necessary changes. But, you know, what if the system's broken? You know, the law courts were wrong. What if the the other, the wisdom and rituals that are being passed down turn out to, you know, not to reflect that true end. Mm. Can and, I uh, ask as well? When you talk about rituals, what what are you are you talking about laws or are you talking about 
like I'm talking about laws, but I mean rituals could include, you know, religious knowledge as well. You know, mm. what we consider our ethical framework. Um, you know, it could even it be your your coming of age, um, the coming of age moment. Now, in today, we don't have that as much for young men and women, but throughout a lot of history, there are specific moments where you will come of age, and there'll be something a ritual that brings you into the new wisdom of adulthood, or like Levi mentioned, laws or religious things as well, right? Yeah, and 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 you know, things can be wrong. I mean, it it takes very little effort to point out the injustices of the past, which people had accepted at that time as you know, moral righteousness, and um, you know, to to move kind of you know relatively smoothly into our next work, this is something that is you know, put on put on display in the time of ancient Greece, especially, and discussed very strongly in the next work, our ancient work for this issue, the Symposium by Plato. Mm. So as Levi mentioned, this idea of the system failing can lead to different responses. And let's not go into the reasons why the system might fail, but I think, you know, they can be kind of self-evident. Um, but what this does to the you, the me, right? The journeyer, the Dimitri, the Ivan, the Alyosha, right? Who's going through the system, whether that be um, a religious ritual, as you mentioned, experiencing the law, could even be the rituals of buying a house, getting a, a student loan and getting married, right? These are all rituals that we are expected to go through in order to reach the, the, the law that will now uh, give us a place in the world around us, right? The, mm. the way that the system works. Now, when this fails, this can cause different responses. And as Levi mentioned, in, in ancient Greece, in the in the kind of Athenian golden age, when they were trying out democracy and seeing how it worked, it very quickly kind of became apparent that it wasn't a great system. <laughs> um, there were a lot of issues with it. And some people began to take advantage of it. We're talking about young men, right? They're the Alyoshas or the Ivans or the Dimitris of the time. They're the yous or me's. And they are using ritual and reason and rhetoric, right? The systems, right, of giving speeches and statecraft, that was how you maneuvered at the time um, in that system, in that world. They're using it to their advantage. They're using it to get short-term gains. They're using it to get what they want, power, wealth, right, respect, and they're, they're abusing rhetoric and logic and reason to get what they want. But it wasn't everyone. In fact, we have a salient example of someone who wasn't like that. And that's one of the main characters, maybe the main character of the work we're looking at now, the symposium. Yes, indeed. And he's, you know, rather famously known as Socrates, the father of Western philosophy, let's say. And uh, in, in this particular work, the symposium, uh, he, you know, takes center stage at uh well a symposium it's pretty much a, a greek fancy word for a, a drinking party in the evenings where all the all the gentlemen and their fancy clothes would come around and get exorbitantly drunk um and the uh, host of this particular symposium decided hey let's all make speeches in um let's all you know let's all take turns have I love the greeks exactly <laughs> you know get together get exorbitantly drunk and give speeches in this case, to the glory of Eros, to uh, the the glory of you know erotic love, the, the the god of erotic love, 
And uh, the symposium makes up is made up with seven speeches, uh, which, you know, Socrates was meant to finish off and be the concluding remark that didn't end up happening that way, as we'll get into. But um, Sam, can you uh, lay out for us, you know, what, 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 what were the speeches? What were they about? How did they land? Yeah, well, so this symposium is exactly like a cross-section of what we're talking about, because a lot of these speeches are given by people who see this is an opportunity to talk about how you can expediently get what you want. And they'll praise Eros, which a lot of the people at this party will call the greatest of the gods, some some of the oldest of the gods, right? This idea of attraction, of divine love, of of desire, of passion, right? Um, they will say he's the oldest and the greatest of the gods, and yet the way that they will praise him will be in terms of how it can be expedient to the political citizen to use him to an end mm. um which is a, which is a contrast right the idea that the the most divine and great of the gods can be sort of manipulated in this way or or seen along maybe what we today might call utilitarian lines somehow doesn't seem right there's a dis dichotomy going on and it's something that socrates will very gladly point out when it comes his time to speak uh as levi mentioned towards the end but what happens before that well we have a bit of a round table of characters um and they're all kind of quite a few of them are celebrities of the era it would be kind of like if um you know we had a famous talker maybe like a noam chomsky or uh you know someone of that ilk going to a party that inv included you know uh Bill Clinton and uh, Elon Musk. Like it's this sort of, uh, and Steven Spielberg, let's say, right? It's a sort of round table of, of famous figures in politics and in arts and in business. Uh, and into it comes this ugly, bumbling, uh, stolid old man who uh, is going to kind of tear apart their perception of what makes attraction, desire, and passion so great and who incidentally mm. we're talking about socrates um and yes. who's one of the most famous characters in history I would say. <laughs> which is funny yeah yeah well because i guess at this party in some ways he's sort of like uh he's sort of he's definitely not the highlight guest you know uh in terms of in terms of power and fame and recognition but he becomes the highlight guest as soon as he walks in the room because of what we'll get to later how he treats others and how he inspires others now you know the first three speeches you know for the purpose of this discussion we can sort of glide over them they're not they're interesting don't get me wrong but they're not they're not the core of what we're really getting at here because you know there's sort of there's many ways you can read the symposium We've, we're just offering one reading here mm. um so the, there's, there's a total of seven speeches the first three you can ignore and now the middle the fourth, it's sort of pride of place in a way, you know, the middle and the end. The, so the first, the middle and the end are sort of, you know, have that sort of priority, that primacy to mm. them. Now, the middle speech, the pride of place was given to Aristophanes, the, uh, you know, famous comic playwright of Athens, you know, wrote, wrote comedies, which, you know, frankly, uh, are still hilarious to this day. And um, his speeches, you know, it stands out quite a bit, Sam. How would how would you characterize the speech of Aristophanes? Yeah, it's quite funny. So there's a kind of almost a recurring theme in some of the early speeches where it's only towards the end that they really get to the point of praising Eros, right? They'll mostly talk 
about why eros is useful right what eros can do to benefit the state to benefit those who seek to uh you know elevate themselves um and in this roster we have you know phaedrus who's a kind of an idealist turned a bit of a utilitarian. Then you have Pausanias, who's just a rich man, right? And then you have Eryximachus, a doctor who tries to kind of insert his medical philosophy into this praise. Um, but Aristophanes, who accidentally goes forth because he got the hiccups earlier when he was meant to speak, uh, comes in and tells not so much a speech in the style of, you know, here are three reasons why and let me explain myself, but he tells a, a silly story. <laughs> if you will right it's, he tells it's us very silly it's you know very like silly. <laughs> like some scholars suggest that you know it's just a bit of comedic relief like it's just a gag halfway through so people keep reading like in a shakespeare play when the grave diggers come out halfway through hamlet just to crack some jokes so you don't feel too depressed yeah exactly <laughs> so aristophanes says that once upon a time human beings had two heads and four limbs of each variety. So uh, four arms, four legs, and they were sort of a spherical shape and they got around by cartwheeling really, really fast. They could sort of just roll about like a giant ball with limbs outstretched and they were super quick and super speedy. And because of their spherical shape, the Greeks uh, were very big fans of spheres. They were too powerful. And they decided <laughs> one day to roll up Mount Olympus and overthrow the gods. Now, the gods weren't very happy with this prospect. So as the humans come rolling up, Zeus throws lightning and splits them in half. Um, so now human beings have had their heads turned around, all their skins being gathered up to create a belly button and it's tied in a knot there. And then um, their genitals are fixed up so that human beings uh, can now have intercourse and, and produce new offspring. Yeah, they can slot <laughs> back together. And, and Aristophanes says, the reason why Eros is so great is he motivates us. He's the one who helps us find the other half that was missing since the dawn of time, right? And the Greeks believed in sort of various forms of reincarnation or metempsychosis. So the idea is your soul has probably been around forever. So you will find your soulmate, you know. And, um, and Aristophanes gives this quite a comic speech and he ends with saying... Eros is great because he encourages us by leading us to this sexual desire for, for communion with one another from ever revolting against the gods again. Mm. Because if we didn't have Eros, we'd try it again. And then what would happen? We'd be split in half and have one eye and one arm, one leg, and it'd be ridiculous, right? <laughs> um, and, and that's Ar Aristophanes' reason for praising Eros, is because he's preserving us from another revolt in which we would become even more broken apart i love the and, <laughs> well it sounds silly <laughs> it does it sounds it sounds comedic and yet um there's something deep going on here because aristophanes has sort of shifted the conversation right from being around this idea of eros as it might function in the state to eros as it might bring individuals into a particular kind of union that brings them higher and not higher in a sacrilegious sense that brings the wrath of the gods upon them but brings them higher in a way that completes them um mm. and so it's silly it's very silly but it's strangely important and as levi mentioned the fact that it happens in the middle right at pride of place between the beginning and the end is tipping us off to the way that the conversations are going to change mm, absolutely now, the uh, next couple of speeches are rather interesting as well. So uh, next after Aristophanes is Agathon. And um, he 
you know, he gets up and he says some nice, flowery, poetic, you know, rhetoric, all of the blessings of love, things like that. And then, you know, Socrates comes on after him and, you know, this, <laughs> the way it's... It's very humorous, and it's like, oh, it's like, you've got me a bit unprepared here, Agathon, because you've been telling all of these lies about Eros, and I, I wasn't prepared to tell lies. It's like, I'm not <laughs> sure how well I'll do now. Yeah, Socrates literally says, I thought we meant to tell the truth. I haven't I haven't stocked up any fibs. I might have to go home without speaking. And, you know, you get a kind of groans from the audience. Oh, right, Socrates, what do you got in store now? Exactly. Um, Socrates changes everything. And he describes Eros not as one of the most powerful of the gods, but it's actually not even a god at all. But to do this, Socrates, having just insulted everybody, kind of backs up a bit. He says, it's all right. I might have just all called you liars and perhaps idiots as well, but I was once a liar and an idiot too. And the speech I'm about to give isn't my own, but it comes from a woman. Now, if you know anything about the ancient Greeks, you'll know why that's a little bit significant and controversial, right? It comes from a woman called Diatima. She's a priestess. And she told me that love is actually half divine. He's somewhere half between a god and a human. We'll call him a spirit. And he is the spirit who, because of his half divine and half human nature, is always striving to become more perfect and more beautiful. That is what desire is. And if Eros was a god, he would have beauty and he would have happiness and he would have all of these things fulfilled so he can't be right logically he can't be i know it's weird to talk about logic in these kind of mythical contexts but socrates is saying he he is less than that and yet he's still a little bit more than human so we'll call him a spirit and we know that he he is always striving to bring himself to the station of the gods to be perfectly beautiful and perfectly happy and so when he infects a human with a, a mortal with his will that will will pull them upwards too right and so we've kind of gone full circle from the early speeches which talk a lot about physical love that the physical aspects of of sexual intercourse and the fulfillment that eros gives in that regard to finally this understanding that eros is most powerful because even though he's not the greatest of the gods he is the vehicle that brings us higher right now all of a sudden crash the door's knocked in um and a, and a strange figure uh appears at the party in bursts alcibiades uh you know party boy extraordinaire you know celebrity if there was a playboy magazine in ancient greece you bet he'd be on the cover oh he'd be on the cover of every issue and the centerfold like alcibiades <laughs> is you know he is the true party boy of ancient athens um you know famously you know it's, you know, in the historical context, a year after this party is supposed to have taken place, he's, you know, driven out of Athens for sacrilege and turns traitor to the Spartans. That's pretty um, That's pretty big for Athens to be driven out for sacrilege. Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. <laughs> Admittedly, as he says so of himself, he's a very handsome man and no one will argue with him. And um, he... <laughs> he sits himself down next to Socrates and, you know, says immediately, oh, Socrates, how lucky of you. You've managed to find a seat next to the most handsome man at the party. Um, and um, it's sort of after this beautiful, you know, speech of Socrates of like, yeah, love is this force that pulls us higher. It's the perennial searching. You get Alcibiades bursting in, you know, full of erotic love 
in the most yeah. sort of base sense of the form and immediately tries to seduce Socrates in a front of a room full of people and just, you know, you know, want both wants him physically, but there is still something more. Yeah, it's interesting. So Alcibiades bursts in, he's absolutely sloshed, even more than Aristophanes, who got so drunk he he started hiccuping. Um, and he he begins to accuse Socrates, right? He says, oh, I see, as Levi mentioned, I see next to the most handsome man in the room, you old devil, you're at it again, right? Socrates will get all the handsome young men, you know, over to his side and won't let anybody else speak to them, right? And Alcibiades relates that he was once one of those young men, right? And as you mentioned, he's trying to like praise and flatter and seduce Socrates here. He, he immediately says, I'm going to toast him, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to I'm going to tell the truth about him. You think he might be like this. I tell you what. You think he's not interested in boys? He is very interested in seducing young men, like any other Greek. Spicy man. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And yeah, Alcubiades relates how he fell head over heels as a young man for Socrates and was spurned constantly. He tells every trick he played to try and get Socrates to become intimate with him. And how Socrates always eh, didn't show any interest. Ah, you know, just went home after drinking. Ah. You know, and Alcibiades expresses his frustration, right? He says, but I'll show you the true character of the man, right? And he starts talking about how Socrates is is a seducer, right? He is this figure who will lure people in to his, his sway, like a siren, right? But not physically, right? Socrates will do it in a way that forces them, right, to first recognize a wisdom, right? And then desire more than anything else to reconcile themselves to it. And so it's this strange move where Alcibiades bursts in having heard none of the speeches. And right after Socrates has explained how love is this daimon, right? This spirit that draws men higher. And he's not fully God, but he's not fully mortal. Alcibiades comes in and pretty much identifies Socrates as that spirit. He says, here he is. Here is someone who is bitten by Eros and is infecting others with that call to the divine. He is the greatest seducer who has ever lived. Absolutely. It's and it is a wonderful move, you know, from Plato, who we won't get into it here, but you know, was apparently not a big fan of drama or plays. You know, that is a dramatic moment in a sense it's a it's, it's a beautiful moment of you know culmination of the speech um and yeah it's this, this strange sort of positive framing of seduction of you know this, this force drawing you higher even if you don't know quite why because that's the thing like Alcibiades says like you know Socrates is the only man who has ever made me feel any shame but mm. it's like he's Alcibiades still doesn't un- really understand it but he he's he's following and that's that's what matters he's on he's on he's got the direction right uh, at least in this speech. Yeah, um, he, later in history we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, Sam. It's it's all about the speech. It's about the narrative as it is. Like let's it not is, get, yeah. Let's not get bogged down in historical details. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you're but, right, um, yeah, Alcibiades is, even if he doesn't follow Socrates, he knows, he's cracked the code. He knows that he is a powerful seducer and his form of seduction is one that pulls men towards a higher communion beyond a communion that socrates himself can offer Mm, absolutely but uh in our final work that we're going to discuss here um a bit more briefly maybe uh sir gawain and the green knight seduction comes back as a more uh in its more traditional sense in the way we would say it now perhaps 
as a um as a more negative force. Yeah, so seduction plays a huge role in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And I think if um we did a bonus episode on this very recently, there's a lovely uh we've got a YouTube video up with some illustrations from the original text, the original illuminated manuscript, and plenty of other images in which we break down the full story of this work and a lot of the themes. So if you're interested, I would definitely recommend uh looking up Incidental Encyclical Magazine on YouTube and we have a very deep kind of dive into that work but just going on as levi mentioned from the seduction of the symposium to the seduction of sir gawain this is sort of a final moment of strife within right where um the ritual right that can become corrupt and can become confusing and confounded can be remedied by making it trivial by making it a game mm. and this is one final way right in which we can experience strife within but without the kind of existential risk that it poses in these other stories or so it seems mm. because yeah. Sergawain, sorry Leo. no no before we get into the details and like as i as sam has said we get very into the the details of Sergawain and the green eyes in our bonus episode our christmas special uh, before we start talking about the themes, we should tell the audience what is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. You're right. Let's let's not recap the story until they know a little bit about where it comes from. So it's the sort of the last King Arthur romance of the Middle Ages, and it's uniquely written in Middle English, whereas most of them are written by French and German people about English people. Uh, and this is um, a Cultural story appropriation that yeah. <laughs> And so this is a story about the one of the youngest of the knights of King Arthur's court, his nephew, Gawain, who at the beginning of the story has never done any great deed, has never confronted any great strife, and needs to do something to prove himself. And um, as it's written in, I think, Old English or Middle English? Uh, middle, yeah, yeah. Middle English. Um, the translations get quite funny. Like there are some, there are some sentences which are just very hilarious. <laughs> like I think at the start of uh at the start of the story, um, someone like obviously Gawain is this this knight in shining armor, classic knight in shining armor figure, literally and figuratively. Um, and lots of like he's very, very honored, very, he's got lots of honor and lots of self kind of power within that, and people, you know, like him. And at the start of the book, he was referred to as a fine father of breeding. And I just, that's my favorite, that's my favorite line, I think, in the entire Sir Gawain story is, ah, oh, Gawain, the fine father of breeding, <laughs> one of them. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, that is beautiful. We've lost. Well, apart, apart from having such a wonderful uh, epithet to his name, uh, Gawain is um, about to embark on a story that will put his breeding, his manners uh, and all of the uh, baggage he carries as a knight in shining armor <laughs> to the test. Um, so this story takes place at Christmas time, and in the beginning of the story, as I mentioned, Gawain is untried and untested, and they're sitting down at Christmas dinner, and he has pride of place because he's Arthur's nephew, but he has this, uh, let's say, maybe anxiety, because even though he's sitting in an elevated place, he hasn't earned that by his deeds. And all of a sudden, this massive troll-sized horseman enters his horse is green the man is green every piece of clothing and armor and the weapon he carries is green and he rides into the hall and demands someone play a game with him 
Now, as you mentioned, usually games are like mini rituals, right? They're a way we can encounter strife within, encounter something that would test us, but the consequences aren't usually life-threatening or going to cause us existential dread. No. And yet this, this knight rides into Camelot on Christmas Day and demands that someone trade blows with him with his massive axe. And Gawain, seeing this is his chance to do something of note, steps up. And when the knight kneels and flicks the hair away from the back of his neck, Gawain lifts the axe and cuts the head straight off. And that was the end of the story. Was it? <laughs> no, wow. that's what you would expect. <laughs> normally, normally someone getting their head chopped off is a pretty final moment. But it uh, doesn't seem to phase the Green Knight. He stands Classic up. King collects... Arthur. King <laughs> Arthur Marvel. Classic King Arthur moment, yeah. Butterflesh wound, as they say. <laughs> it is butterflesh wound. Yes, indeed. No, uh, the Green Knight stands up, collects his head, and says, all right, see you in a year's time. I'm going to do the same. And uh, you've got to come find me at the place they call Green Chapel. Or, uh, you know, you know, you'll be a bit of a coward. You'll be embarrassed in front of everyone. And he, he comfortably rides off with his head under his arm. And um, that's that's really what sets the scene for the rest of the narrative, which is Sir Gawain, you know, the, the, the year, the intervening year quickly passes. And next Christmas time, Sir Gawain has to ride out and confront the Green Knight at the Green Chapel to uh, receive the blow back, to receive the blow in return. So the story begins in the game, in the beheading game, right? The exchange of blows. And as the story goes on, Gawain will get caught up in two more games before he finally finds the Green Knight again. As Levi mentioned, he rides out next Christmas and after riding through across uh, to the edge of the known world, Wales, <laughs> He finds a castle and asks if he can stay the night to celebrate Christmas Mass. And he's getting worried that he won't find the Green Chapel in time. But when he arrives, the host, the Castellan, the knight lord of the castle, Bertilac, says, no, no, don't worry about it. I've, if, if your errand is to find the Green Chapel, I'll direct you there within a, it's within a day's ride. Gawain's relieved and Bertilac invites him to relax for the next couple of days and celebrate Christmas and not worry too much because, as he mentioned, it's not too far away. And you'd think for someone who was already, you know, risking his life, Sir Gawain would make the most of this time just to, to relax and kick back and not get himself involved in any more strife. But he, he you know, he, he's, he's Sir Gawain and uh, Bertilac proposes a lovely Christmas game. He says, you know what, we're going to, over the next over the course of the next three days, I will, everything that I gain, I will, you know, grant to you as a gift. And everything that you gain, you will give to me. And it'll be an exchange of gifts as part of a, a Christmas game at the end of every day. And Hey, three no, gifts is a Christmas tradition, you know, given three gifts. <laughs> exactly. And so um, over the over the next three days, Burslack goes out hunting and um, hunts wild game and brings back. And the end of every day, he uh, gives, those, uh, gives the game as gifts to Gawain. But... What on earth can Gawain acquire while he's staying at a foreign lord's castle that could be of any value to him? Well, Gawain takes pretty, you know, pretty seriously for the most part the whole rest and recuperation before the death ordeal uh, that he's about to face. So he spends most of his days lying in bed and he sleeps in just about every morning. But unfortunately for him, his, uh, his tardiness to get out of bed lets him into the uh the clutches of the lady of the castle lord bertilax 
wife who visits him every morning and attempts to seduce him, right? And Gawain is now caught up in a very uh, sticky bit of strife where his honour as a knight who must behave appropriately but also generously towards women and yet his role as a guest are being challenged. So he's dealing with the wife of his host here there's a big taboo were he to do anything inappropriate with her. And not just that, but anything he receives of this lady, he has to give up to Bertilak. So he's really caught in a, in a situation. And so for the first few days, Gawain very courteously um, and very adroitly engages in this battle of wits or words and tries to put her off without being rude and accepts a kiss on the first day and two kisses on the second, which at the end of the day, he does give to Bertilak among much merriment and laughter. But it's on the third day that the test gets a little bit more heated. Indeed, because the, the lady comes in and uh, she grants him three kisses. But in addition, uh, because this is going to be Gawain's last day staying at the castle, she's like, take something to remember me by. Here, take this gold ring. Uh, and Gawain has, you know, remains steadfast. He says, no, thank you. I don't need, I don't need jewellery. It wouldn't be appropriate. But um, when uh, the mistress of the castle changes her offer from a golden ring to a, a green girdle, uh, Gawain changes his mind. For in addition, she adds, whoever wears this girdle shall not be felled by any blow. And for someone who's about to go meet his death at the hands of an axe, such a promise is, you know, pretty tempting. But Gawain's bad. He'll, he'll give it up, right? He'll he'll at least tell Bird like he got it before he rides out, won't he? Well, you know, this is this is the testing point because you know here's Gawain. He's caught in in multiple games. He's caught in the seduction game uh, of you know Bertilak's wife, which so far he has you know been you know steadfastly refusing. He's caught in the Christmas game where anything that he gains he has to give up anyway. But you know overriding all of this is the beheading game where you know he's gonna die tomorrow and so Gawain takes the girdle which is already you know a sign of cowardice that he's you know taken it and that he's given in he's sort of violated his um courtly responsibilities in you know staying steadfast in the uh seduction game but when the day when the end of the day comes he gives birth like the three kisses that his wife originally gave him, but um, withholds the girdle for himself. So now he also breaks his, his breaks his promise. He breaks his troth, as the uh, Middle English would have said it. Which, as far as the story goes, is very, is a big moment. Like, we might not, you know, think much of it, like, hearing about us talk about this now, but the whole story basically has been highlighting how Gawain's this, like, really, really holy honest like figure of virtue and then this is kind of the first moment where he's done something not aligned with that kind of narrative and more so it's like he does it all at once yeah like he yeah. breaks he, he breaks, breaks all the rules every rule at once yeah now it, this is pointed out to him very shortly after but wayne rides out in the morning on new year's to the Green Chapel, where even before he sees the man or the, the monster, more accurately, he's about to confront, he hears the sound of the axe grinding against a whetstone. And he rides up and the Green Knight tells him, well, 
you know what to do, kneel down and I'll I'll deliver my blow. And so the Green Knight raises his axe, brings it down and stops short of Gawain's neck. This happens the second time and Gawain's getting flustered and frustrated. And on the third time, the Green Knight brings the axe down and just makes the barest, the tiniest of scratches on Sir Gawain's neck. Now Gawain jumps up straight away declaring the challenge to be over and he's even ready to fight the Green Knight if he wants to attempt any further action. But the Green Knight tells him something shocking, which is that he is Bertilak, transformed by the magic of the witch Morgan Le Fay, and that the three blows symbolize the three temptations that Gawain faced. Uh, and that though the first two were were passed with flying colors, the third was in the third instance, Gawain cheated. He broke the rules of the seduction game because he accepted a token of affection, a scandalous and somewhat sexual token of affection from a woman, which he then didn't offer up in the exchange of winning. So he cheated in that game too. And then finally that he wore as a magical talisman to protect him in the beheading game. And so in all these three instances, Gawain has been breaking rules and he's been finally seduced right, into rebelling against all the games that he was participating in. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it, Levi? Well, yes, because, you know, now he rides back to Camelot, wearing, still wearing, importantly, the green girdle, and uh, he's congratulated by all the knights, and he tells the story of his adventure, and, you know, everyone's ecstatic, they see the girdle, and they view it as some sort of trophy. trophy. But... From this point on, Gawain has, you know, clearly recognized that what he's done is, you know, wrong at every possible level of analysis and um, views his wearing of the girdle as, you know, an eternal mark of his shame and of having broken his his oath and his promise and, you know, every virtue which he held dear. Yeah, so it's not just the games that he's broken, right? It's not just the rules. Like, it's it's the games weren't just games they were testing all the aspects of his character like all these systems in which he's playing they're testing his uh chivalry as as a in terms of how he as a knight treats women but his chivalry also is how he as to how he keeps his word in the face of trouble the treaty they're testing his uh ability to behave well as a guest when he's been shown hospitality they they even his faith in god as you pointed out in our discussion that we had earlier on it he has sort of failed to keep because he's accepted a magical pagan talisman instead of relying on his faith in God to preserve him. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's um, it's maybe a bit of a downer to end on, in a sense, let's say, but Sir Gwen the Green Knight is, is the it's the ultimate example of how not to engage with strife within, in a sense. Yeah. It's just... It's to sacrifice all that was good in yourself for something of, you know, questionable value. He's the rebel and the renegade. renegade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. he ends up in and, both you know, roles. <laughs> at the end, he's, you know, you know, faced with reconciliation in the sense that he's recognized his wrongdoing and is, mm. you know, from now on in, in the other Arthur stories, again, as you pointed out in, in our bonus episode discussion, Sam, it's like, Gawain in, for example, Parzival is sort of this figure of, you know, utmost virtue once again. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, at the end of the Gawain story, that isn't necessarily stated explicitly. Yeah. And so I suppose we've covered here all these different aspects of strife within. We've looked at first these paths of rebel renegade and reconciliation that we could 
cape when we're presented with something telling us who to be or what to do. And we've looked at how sometimes the people who are telling us what to do or the system over us can be corrupt and that can lead towards sometimes despair and sometimes uh, we, the journeyers, the individuals, trying to twist things to our advantage, but how ultimately we maybe should pursue this eros, this seduction that will take us even beyond the systems that are um, around us. And and lastly, we've kind of gone into how seduction can have a negative aspect too, right? The seduction can be a form of strife that doesn't call us up, but calls us to break the rules. And, and when we break those rules, how one single game can spill out into every aspect of our lives and how as we end here, as you know, to Levi, it's sort of a downer. And it does make me wonder if there's something that needs to happen from here to fix this problem. Indeed. Where could uh, an individual such as Gawain, uh, you know, find redemption? Well, it's interesting that you asked that. It's interesting that you brought up Parzival because uh, you, you mentioned that Gawain appears in Parzival. You don't mention there what he's doing in that story. And um, perhaps coming into next year, we'll be taking a different overarching theme to carry us through each issue and to carry us through a new story. And perhaps it might start in this very difficulty, this need to find something that will help us, that will restore us, that will make everything whole again. Because the strife within is just tearing us apart. Yeah. We are roly-poly people and the strife is the bolt of zeus splitting us tying <laughs> our skin in a belly button yeah indeed yeah and on that <laughs> on that on bombshell that, on that bombshell on that wonderful note i think yes. uh, i would urge everyone who has you know enjoyed this discussion to check out our bonus episodes on dostoyevsky and uh so in the green knight um, as Sam mentioned before, the first, uh, the latter of which, the Gawain episode, is on YouTube as well with wonderful uh, illustrations from the original manuscript interspersed and such. Uh, Dostoevsky sadly is audio only still. And to also certainly check out the written edition, which will be coming out at some point uh, very soon. And, um, you know, with that, I'll leave you all with uh, on that bombshell. Mm. Yeah. Well, Thank thanks, for, thanks for the discussion and thanks to everyone for listening. Um, and we look forward, yeah, to this new year coming up uh, and the, the new themes and new stories and new mythologies and the new uh, applications to our own lives, as difficult as they can be, that I'm sure we'll <laughs> encounter along the way. Yeah. Keep on the journey. Keep on keeping on and um, read a book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.